Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. A safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. My name is Known Wells. I am the creator and host of this podcast. I'm also the founder of the Feely Human Collective. I'm also a silly boy with lots of silliness in my heart. And I am grateful that you're here for episode 220 on learning to sit with discomfort with my guest, Claire Bidwell-Smith. In this episode, Claire and I explore appreciating things we've taken for granted, feeling shame around having dead parents, anxiety as a missing stage of grief, and why our greatest life work as humans is to learn to sit with discomfort. Really, really enjoyed this chat with Claire. Claire is an author, a therapist, a grief expert. She is a host of a podcast called New Day on Lemonada Media, a, an organization, a company, people I love and cherish. Go check out all of their podcasts, but especially New Day. And maybe add to cart with Koo and Sue. That's wonderful, too. Anyways, really love this chat. I think you will love it as well. Before we get to the episode, though, just wanted to say one week from today, that rhymed, just wanted to say one week from today is Dear Childhood Me Day, April 4th, one week from today, Dear Childhood Me, I am launching my journal into the wild. I'm doing a limited release pre-sale starting April 4th, that's ending May 4th. And I'm very excited. I'm very nervous. I don't know how it's going to go. Probably I'm I'm trying to like kind of go through the emotions of like trying not to expect too much and, you know, trying to discern what success means for me, all of those emotional stuff. Next week on Dear Childhood Me Day, I will be releasing an episode that's just dedicated to what that journey and what the product means to me. And I will also announce, um, I've already announced it on the Feely Human Instagram at Feely Human, but it's going to be an opportunity for you also to not only, you know, buy your journals, uh, as many journals as you want, but also uh, take part in Dear Childhood Me Day and sharing a photo of a childhood version of you and sharing something special, sharing a message, something you'd want to say to that version of you. But more on that next week. It's in one week from today. Mark your calendars. I'm very excited. Uh, it's been a long time coming. I'm very nervous. Like I said, I hope you love it as much as I do. Okay, let's get to the episode, shall we? 
uh, actually, make sure to follow follow me on Instagram at Yumi Empathy, and uh, please rate, review, and subscribe. It does help out the show. I'm an independent podcaster. Right now, as I'm recording this introduction, I have two dogs on a couch. I have a partner on a couch. She's she's probably wordling on her phone. And uh, this is the life of an independent podcaster. I'm not in some fancy studio. I don't have an on-air sign. It's just me, and the door is open, and there's I hear sheep in the background and chickens. This is the life, and it's wonderful. Anyways, please rate, review, subscribe. It does help out the show. Show notes are always at feelyhuman.co. That's where you can support my work through Patreon, patreon.com slash feelyhuman, or writing for our journal, buying something from the shop, and all of that jazz. Any hoozles, let's get to the episode. This is episode 220 on learning to sit with discomfort with Claire Bidwell-Smith. To you, me, empathy—the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights, and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of you, me, empathy is to talk openly, without judgment, about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. You, me, empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, it's a new day, a new day in which I'm overjoyed and grateful to be here with therapist grief expert, author of three books, and working on a fourth, and host of the New Day podcast, it's Claire Bidwell-Smith. Hello, Claire. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, so grateful to have you, truly. Uh, Big fan of your show, New Day. It's wonderful. Um, I love the folks over at Lemonada. uh, I've been connected with Jacqueline. That's how we got this going. Really grateful to have you. Let's do the thing we always do when we start this show, which is an emotional check-in. How are you Mm. feeling? How am I feeling? I'm feeling pretty good today. Um, I just moved to a new town. I'm in Mill Valley outside of San Francisco, and I've been trying to meet people here. And it's always hard to kind of meet new people as an adult, I think, and then COVID. Um, But last night, I invited a bunch of moms over in my daughter's seventh grade class. And we had Mm. this really great time. And none of them had really gotten to know each other. And being the therapist I am, I was like, 
getting us all into some deep conversations, but <laughs> I woke up feeling really good from it. It just felt nice to connect with people and start some kind of community. That's lovely. That's mm-hmm. really um, needed at, at this time, right? Yeah. Are you are you a more introverted person, extroverted person? All the way extrovert. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 I need like six hours of alone time a year. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So you've been probably feeling it the past couple of years. Yeah, it's been tough. It really, I, I would like to be with people all day, all the time. Um, mm. And mm. luckily I have a lot of people in my family, so that's going okay. But yeah, okay. it's been, all it's right. been a lot the last couple of years. That's lovely. I, I, um, I'm an introvert, but I, I do still, I mean, we all still need connections as humans, mm-hmm. as you know, uh, the first year of the pandemic, <laughs> By the way, it's weird to say the first year of a pandemic. I uh, never thought I would say that. <laughs> uh, the first year of the pandemic, me um, and my wife, Jessica, we hosted a reading hour every Sunday with some friends and their kids where we'd like get together for a couple of hours in our backyard. Uh, we'd, we'd make tea and then everyone would bring a book and they would just read sort of quietly your own book in your own space. And it was... That's awesome. It wasn't the sort of like, let's have a deep conversations, which I, I enjoy. I love that. But it was just intentional space to be with each other. And it was mm-hmm. so beautiful. And then it just kind of fizzled out. And I, I've been thinking lately, I'd, I want to kind of bring it back. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, I think we've all been talking a lot about different lessons and, and positives that have come out of this really weird and hard experience, but some Mm. of them are just rethinking our sense of community and connection and what we want it to look like and kind of appreciating things we, we had taken for granted. Mm. So Mm. have you taken anything for granted? That's a good question. Um, I think, I think, yeah, I think the ability to just gather, um, it was something I just always did. And suddenly that was taken away mm. uh, and it was startling. Um, I, it wasn't something I ever thought would be lacking in my life. And, but then it was actually really nice to have this internal family time and think about that as well. Mm. Have, have you noticed a sort of a deepening connection with your family during this past couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It has been nice. I am remarried and have a blended family. And um, I have a little son with my second husband. And he was only, what was he, less than a year old when the pandemic happened. So, um, you know, it was just a lot of kind of bonding in that sense as well, which was kind of nice Mm. as a new little internal family. I love that. Mm -hmm. And this idea around, I've been thinking about this lately a lot, this idea around community and collective and what that really means, right? Mm-hmm. Like lately, I mean, I just read actually before we got on, um, just this this sort of ongoing feeling and stress and anxiety around just wanting to get back to normal, wanting to, um, not wanting to, just exhausted by it, exhausted by the pandemic, exhausted by masks, mm-hmm. exhausted by COVID. And I empathize. And also, I I feel like it's challenging our sense of 
patience and stillness and reminding us to sort of deepen into those nuanced spaces of empathy and what that really means, what collective healing really means. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard emotional labor. Yeah, it do is. Do you feel that? I definitely do. And I kind of hope that we don't just skip over all of this and try to get right back to normal. You know, there's a lot here, I think, to process, to heal, to learn from. Um, But, you know, we, I think we as adults are having such a different experience than kids. You know, we, I mean, my kids are three, um, nine and almost 13. And Mm -hmm. the last two years are pretty significant portions of their life, you know? And so it's it's become a a much more of a way of life for them um, than I think it has for us, um, where I don't think they're thinking as much about getting back to normal. This is just kind of what things are in their worlds. And that's been really interesting to kind of observe um, because I think as adults, we're also hungry to like get back to what we know things were like, but for them, I don't know. They're, they're in a, they're in a different space with it. Mm. Do you think that, is a, a generational thing or is it just sort of the ages that they are and and I think it's their ages. Mm. I think I think you know teenagers late teens I think they'd have much more of a you know um idea of before and after mm-hmm. um but but my younger kids the younger kids for sure are just like eh, you know masks like restrictions you know shutting down schools every 10 minutes whatever. <laughs> it is this interesting thing we do as humans where um we, I mean, uh, we all do it. I do it. I'll speak for myself. We, I get comfortable with a certain way of doing things, right? And mm-hmm. when that's disruptive, disrupted, it's hard. It's mm-hmm. It brings anxiety. It brings overwhelm. It brings the feeling that I need to get back to the thing. Um, what I find to be really enlightening and enriching is to sit with that uncomfortability that discomfort sit with that and like what is that about am i am i considering uh intent and impact here am i considering like how truly i am connected to my neighbor and they're connected to this person and this community and etc etc down the line or am i insular in my own sort of little circle Mm -hmm. I feel like our greatest life work as humans is to learn to sit with discomfort, you know, Mm. yet we have so many ways to skip over it and skip out of it. We have created and designed so many different ways to um, escape discomfort and uncomfortability and, um, you know, pain and angst. Uh, So it's, it's a challenge to actually sit with it and really be present to it. Mm. How have you learned to, I mean, you've had some big, hard losses and pain in your life? How have you learned to sit with some of that discomfort? You know, uh, my, both of my parents got cancer at the same time when I was 14. Uh, my mother died when I was 18 and my dad when I was 25 and I'm an only child. So I kind of entered into early adulthood in a lot of grief and pain and confusion, um, existential crises. Um, and I ran from it for a long time. I traveled the world. I got into relationships. I drank too much. You know, I really tried to get away from it, but it wasn't going anywhere. And when I kind of finally hit that rock bottom or that realization that it wasn't going anywhere, I did force myself to sit with it. Um, and that was the way through, you know, and sitting with it looked like so many things, you know, yoga, meditation, just sitting in a bathtub every night and crying, you know, just really 
sitting there in it. Um, but once I did, that was when I finally broke free, you know, all the time of running from it, it just was with me all along. And help me understand a little bit about what you mean by sitting in it. Is it sort of a cognitive sort of contemplation of the loss, thinking about like what will happen next, thinking about sort of the feelings in your body and the pain in your body, like all of those types of things? Yeah, it was a lot more emotions. Um, It was just really feeling sadness, fear, um, anxiety, um, really letting myself process through some of the hard moments. I mean, there were some really hard things to see and to be part of um, watching my parents both die. And, and those things I had tried to just not work through um, and just push away and put away. But those again, also weren't going anywhere. Um, so sitting through those, really processing them, um, sitting through a lot of shame, regret, guilt, those were really big pieces of mm. my, of my journey. Um, mm. I had a lot of, I had a lot of those around, around it all. And most of them weren't anything rational, you know, but yeah. they came with my age. They came with that going through that kind of loss. Mm. Help me understand the shame a little bit. What what was going on there? You know, it I it I that's the one I still sometimes weirdly carry is I have shame around not having parents. I have this shame around having dead parents. Um and it was one that felt very strong in earlier in my life but still comes up here and there, you know, when I'm around other families and seeing them with their parents or hearing their kids talk about their grandparents or, you know, things like that. Um, And it's irrational. Like I I'm no less of a human being for having dead parents, but um, yeah, maybe it's just cultural and societal. It was Mm. hard, you know, and it still pops up here and there. I mean, the loss you experienced was, I mean, uh, no one should have to go through that, right? And it's it's one of those things where I think there are certain things in our lives where we like, this is the expectation. Like, we have parents, right? And we, mm-hmm. you know, they're part of our lives and they, they're meant to give us unconditional love. And that's an important part of fostering our emotional state and our hearts and all of this stuff, right? Some people don't get that because, mm-hmm. you know, in your case, like, you lose your parents and then... And then the world doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I. <laughs> this is a weird analogy, but Jessica and I, my partner and I have been watching that show Cheer. Have you seen that? I seen it. Mm-mm. It's really incredible. And we just finished the first season. And it's, it's the, the cheerleaders are made up of, of people from all walks of life and a lot of trauma, a lot of just mm-hmm. like hard stuff. And I think about... Um, how different we all experience life and growing up in childhood. And there's such a, I think there's such like for me, like I grew up in an environment where um, it didn't always feel safe. Right. And I, Mm -hmm. I, I, I think I grieve certain aspects of what, I see in Jessica's parents and my in-laws, mm-hmm. right? And like mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And I feel I feel grief about that. I feel loss about that. And that's sort of like the comparison thing. And maybe that's the cultural thing you're speaking mm-hmm. to is like, yeah, 
you're experiencing things where people are talking about parents and that's hard and you don't have them. And like, what the hell is that about? And why did this happen? And it's just a weird thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, but I think so many of us think that other people have everything figured out or they have everything lined up and none of us really do, you know, Um, becoming a therapist and doing the work I do really helped me helped me release a lot of shame. Um, just, I was like, oh, everyone's just trying to get through this human experience. You know, none of us have this all figured out. Well, there, I think for me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this for me, as I've sort of deepened into my own work and going to therapy and all that stuff, I've learned to um, abandon some of my bias that I have or, or just investigate it a bit more mm-hmm. and learn that I make assumptions all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we do as humans, but like, what are my assumptions saying about how I show up in this space or how I interact with this type of person, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and, and the assumption of people have it all right and they have it better than me, you know, it's, it's an assumption. It's not based yeah. in truth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So, you have this tremendous loss of your parents. You're, you said you were 18 at the time, and then you lost your dad, like, what, seven years later or so? Mm-hmm. Do, did you have a, I mean, you're a therapist now. Did you have a, a sort of a tendency toward sort of exploring mental health, mental health experiences prior to this big trauma, this big loss? No, I did not. Um, mm. I was always a writer. So uh, from a very early age, um, I was writing all the time. And it was what I wanted to do when I grew up. And um, it was what I pursued in school, in high school and in college. Um, so I was writing all the time. And I was writing through my experiences. It was very cathartic to be kind of exploring what I was going through on a writing level. Um And after college, I worked for magazines and newspapers, and I was working on a book. Um, And along the way, um, do you know who Dave Eggers is, the author? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, McSweeney's and Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read uh, Heartbreaking Work and a couple other books, yeah. So Heartbreaking Work came out um, right before my father died, and and I was really drawn to it because he'd lost both of his parents at a young age and he was a writer. Um, and so I was kind of following him along and I was living in LA after my dad died and Dave Eggers opened uh, a branch of his tutoring center there. Oh, wow. And, um, and I was like, sign me up. I just wanted anything to do with his world. Um, and I ended up working there and I became the volunteer coordinator. And it was at a time in my life when I had been incredibly depressed and, um, just home after my dad died, just not doing nothing like so steeped in depression. Um, and then I started working with these kids uh, in these underserved school systems who really needed help. Uh, and, and it was just like the most amazing thing to be of service and to feel useful and to be able to contribute something and to just be around so many different kinds of people. And it led me off on this whole path. I started working for homeless organizations after that. And then I decided to go back and get my master's in clinical psychology. And then I worked in hospice for four years. Um, and it kind of led me down all of that. And I was writing all along the way. So yeah, I've written three books now and I'm working on my fourth and, um, kind of always writing and sharing about the things I'm learning in the, in the work I'm doing. Mm. 
That's beautiful. That's a kind of long answer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It speaks to like, you found a space that saw you and accepted you and you could find a bit of your identity through it. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, I just really that. wanted to do something meaningful. You know, I think that, yeah. I think that's where maybe I was going with this. I, I had all these like jobs at fancy magazines and I was doing travel writing and food reviewing and, and it was so, it just felt so shallow after my father died and I was really had gone through so much and I would, I would just find myself at these, you know, parties in Hollywood and be like, what, what am I doing? What is this? You know, none of this means anything. And, and then sitting there with these kids after school who needed help with homework and their parents were working and couldn't be there. And I was like, okay, this means something. This is, this is valuable. This I want to do. Mm. Talk about perspective, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I feel that I, and I, f- I've been feeling it more and more as I've gotten older. I, I turned 40 last year and I, I don't want to occupy my time doing things that aren't meaningful to me, things mm-hmm. that aren't f- things that fill my heart up to to the brim, right? And yeah, um, like truly making an impact. Like mm-hmm. it's why we're here. I think. I agree absolutely. I think it's um, not always easy to be steeped in meaningful work. You know, I think, I think we have to make a lot of sacrifices. I think we have to do all kinds of things to support ourselves and our families. But I think finding ways to infuse our lives with meaning, even in small bits and pieces is really important to our well-being and our mental health. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I think there's immense privilege in Mm -hmm. having the capacity and the curiosity and the, the sort of the energy to pursue things that are meaningful. It's, mm-hmm. it, that's privilege. And I think you're right. I think there are small ways that we can sort of cognitively, emotionally think about, consider what is meaningful to us. And that that's mm-hmm. just simple curiosity, checking in. Why mm-hmm. am I doing this thing? Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's those little things and that curiosity and critical thinking that I think are crucial in collective healing, liberation, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So what, like, tell me about your, you're a mom now, you're, you're a mom in a blended family and you're a therapist, you're a grief expert. How are you sort of bestowing or creating a space of this type of curiosity or openness around even mental health concepts or death or loss? Yeah. Um, I think that the last couple of years in particular have been so interesting. I've been in this world of grief and death and loss and end of life care for um, over a decade, maybe 13, 14 years. And up until the last couple of years, nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to face it, um, you know, talk about it in public spaces. And that's really changed. Um, I spent most of 2020 giving interviews and talking about grief and death, which was amazing. Um, and it was coming from a really hard place. You know, it was coming from a very necessary people were dying and grieving place, but finally we were opening up that door and that space. And I, that's one of the things I'm hopeful we don't skip past and go back to normal. Like I don't want to go back to not talking about these things. Mm -hmm. We all lose people we love. We all face end of life. You know, we all grieve all kinds of different things. You know, I love that you mentioned grieving, um, having different parents from your partners. You know, one of the big questions I got in 2020 was, 
um, can we can we grieve for things that are not death of a person? <laughs> and I was like, yes, yeah. we can. <laughs> yeah. There are so many things we can grieve for and so many ways we grieve. And grief is an important part of being human. Mm. Um, and so I'm always thinking about how to make more space for this conversation and how to, I feel like my, my work, my job is to give permission permission to grieve, give people mm. permission to grieve. Um, that's all I'm ever doing in my work. Mm. Uh, people find me and they've gone through a big loss and they, they're always very startled by the amount of emotions and how big grief is. And they, they always ask, am I doing this right? I feel like I'm doing this wrong. Like, <laughs> am I supposed to be feeling this much? Is it supposed to be this big? Is it supposed to last this long? Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> permission to go through it. I, it's so interesting, the permission piece. Why do you think that folks feel like they need to get that permission or feel like, oh, I'm doing this wrong or I need to do it in this way? Like, what, what do you think that's about? Well, I think part of it is that we really haven't done a good job about talking about grief and death um, for a long time in our culture. Uh, So it is something that is not role modeled, isn't spoken about um, in Western culture in America in particular. Um, We don't have enough rituals around it. Um, So I think that when it comes upon a person, it it really is so enormous at times that Mm. it's very startling for people. Um, So in that sense, they don't realize it. But then I think we just cover up a lot of hardship in our lives. You know, I think social media contributes to that a lot. Um, Everybody's online world looks great. And so suddenly you're grieving and you're like, wait, this this must be wrong because everybody else looks like they're having a terrific time out there and they've Mm -hmm. got it all together. I must be doing something wrong. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. And I think you're spot on. I, what is also interesting, you said earlier, which is, you know, in 2020, having all of this, oh, grief is a thing. We're experiencing it. I, 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 I hope you're right and that we don't pull away from it because to that analogy or that experience speaks to me in this way. Our culture, our society sort of honors or highlights big moments, right? We have this big collective moment of grief and loss. Let's mm-hmm. talk about it. Whereas in my mind, and that's important, right? In my mind also, it's the nuance. It's that small stuff, right? It's mm-hmm. the, I don't have the same parents as my, as Jessica's parents. I yeah. don't, I, I am a very different person uh, now than I was when I met Jessica. And I'm, I'm also grieving that past person Mm-hmm. Right, who was lost, and I feel, I feel sad for him, and you know, I, 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 I miss him in some ways, and that's mm-hmm. a grief, and I, I miss, you know, like there's all these like little things and nuances that we need to pay attention to, and I think when culturally we honor these big romantic moments, I think we miss that little stuff you're talking about. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, so. Uh, you know, I'm always thinking about how can we just continue to have this conversation more? How can we continue to support people who are grieving and who are going through this? Um, I'm always appreciative, like even just when celebrities write about it or talk about it, um, because we all look to them, you know, <laughs> for permission to be do all kinds of things. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but yeah, mental health is um, 
That's also just like the overall umbrella of mental health has also come to the forefront in the last couple of years, which I'm I'm also very appreciative of. I think that COVID has been enormously difficult for so many of us and mm. loneliness, isolation, people who were struggling with mental health to begin with and then had resources taken away on multiple levels, um, family conflicts that have happened. There's just been so much um, going on, struggles at home with just trying to work at home with kids and, you know, marriages, you know, going through tension. There's just been a ton that's been happening, but it's been great because I feel like we have really been talking about it. I agree. Um, and and you listing all of those things, like all of those things are new, right? It's like, <laughs> whoa, bring on the new pandemic. Bring on, <laughs> bring on like working from home. Bring on, yeah, like uh, like Jessica in this room, me in this room and uh, trying to operate in this space. And, you know, it's so much of it is new. And I think that's hard sometimes, right? It's like mm-hmm. um, change is hard. Yeah. Uh, to put it another way. Yeah. Yeah. I've just, I've seen a lot of um, the effects of loneliness and isolation on my clients though. Um, people who were maybe living more solitary lives to begin with and really dependent on being able to go into the workplace, to be around others, to interact, to have the opportunity to meet people and make friends and having that taken away um, for someone who already struggled with anxiety or depression has been really hard. Mm. Um Especially also people who struggle with substance abuse and not being able to go to meetings or go out and really find support for what they're going through. It's, it's been tough. Yeah. How have you helped or provided some solace or support for those who have felt that? I've been leading tons of online grief groups. Um, okay. So over the last couple of years, a lot of just online gatherings. Um, I started a I started a program called Holding Space in like April of 2020, um, where I was just bringing on people in the grief space to talk. And hundreds of people were showing up to these Zooms just because it was nice to be around other people, to interact, to mm-hmm. talk about the stuff that we were all feeling. Um, and then I've just been running all these grief groups uh, so that people can jump in and sit and talk and be with other people who are who are going through it Mm. um i feel like it's the least i can do you know i'm just trying so hard to bring that sense of connection and support to people who are sitting alone in their homes which Mm. i think is you know that hopefully that piece of the pandemic is really coming to a close it seems like we're out and about more than ever but you know, I've worked with several families who've lost um, people to suicide or overdose because of the way the pandemic affected their their issues. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I mean, in the U- U.S. alone, what are we? We're close to a million deaths. Um, mm-hmm. Horrifying. Yeah. It's devastating. Yeah, um, nothing like we've experienced before uh culturally or societally yeah, it's 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 remarkable um sorry that was big heavy stuff <laughs> yeah no i i think it's so important and uh so appreciate the work you do you you. you talk a little bit about um anxiety right and, and mm-hmm. as, as it relates to grief can you share a little bit about what that means for you and for the listeners yeah. Um, so I wrote a book that came out, the paperback came out in May of 2020, and it's called Anxiety, the Missing Stage of Grief. And it, the whole world was going through anxiety and grief at the time. But 
Um, when my mom died, when I was 18, I started having panic attacks and they came out of nowhere. And, you know, I ended up in an ER at one point, no idea what, what it was, what was going on for me. Even the doctors were very dismissive. No one said the word anxiety. No one asked me what was going on in my life. They were just mm. like, I have heart palpitations and, you know, probably smoking cigarettes and you shouldn't or whatever it was I was mm-hmm. doing. And, um, so for a long time, uh, I suffered with anxiety, didn't realize it was anxiety, didn't connect it to my parents' deaths. Um, it wasn't until I was in a, a trauma psychology class that I began to put these pieces together. And I was like, oh, I think I have anxiety. And I think it's directly connected to these experiences of losing my parents. Mm-hmm. Yet there was nothing in the grief literature out there about it. There was no one talking about anxiety and grief. Um, mm-hmm. And I began to see it in the clients I was working with. I wrote an article in like 2013 for slate.com and it was entitled um, anxiety, the missing stage of grief. And I just got flooded with emails from people saying, is this, is this a real thing? Cause I think I have it. <laughs> um, my dad died. I'm having panic attacks or, you know, whatever my, this happened. I'm now I'm a hypochondriac, uh, all these things. And, um, and so I started, I, I got this influx of clients who were, exhibiting anxiety as it related to grief. And I got to really study it. And I felt like I had to put this book out. Um, and I, and I think it's been, I'm glad it's out there. I feel like it's been really healing for a lot of people to finally start to look at and to talk about makes sense that we, we get anxious when we go through a big loss, you know, any kind of traumatic event can bring on anxiety. Um, but going through the loss of, of a loved one, the whole world turn changes. It's a completely different place. You know, you yeah. wake up one day and you, your spouse is gone, your child, your parent, you know, the world is not what you thought it was. And, and that can feel very disorienting, um, can produce a ton of anxiety that manifests in all different ways, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I've been really trying to just talk about that and help people understand more about that. I love that. Yeah. How can you not have anxiety after such a disruption? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And what are some, you know, as you sort of talk about it in the book or as you help clients, like how, what are some <laughs> remedies or, or, or things that help uh, folks who are experiencing anxiety after or in grief or after a loss? Yeah. Um, it's actually really, you can really work through this. I think people feel very paralyzed in their anxiety often and that, and they're really stuck in a loop of it and it feels like there's no way out of it, but there's a lot you can do. Um, one of the first things I have to do with people though, is look at their grief. You know, are you grieving? How have you grieved? What's your grief support system? Like what are your outlets? Um, have you really taken time to sit with, with what's happened and, and, and feel it? Um, so it's this kind of tandem process of working with their grief and then also really starting to do some work on the anxiety and the anxiety work itself um, looks like meditation um, cognitive behavioral work um, and you know all kinds of just really starting to understand what anxiety is how it works um, working on you know thought worksheets um, it's it's really some of that's super boring and, and nitty-gritty but it really helps with the anxiety mm-hmm. but again it really takes um, this tandem approach when it's, when it's anxiety that's coming from loss of like letting them grieve, letting them really understand and process this enormous life change. Um, and doing that helps with the anxiety as well. Mm. What, how much are you seeing like after loss and anxiety, a fear of death, like a sort of ramping up of a fear of death? 
Yeah, it's big for sure. And it's not always a fear of our own death. Often people will become afraid that they're going to lose another person. Mm. Um, and, you know, irrational ways too, you know, just all of a sudden they start catastrophizing everything around in their lives. You know, husband's mm. home coming home late from work, he must be dead in a car crash, mm-hmm. um, you know, afraid to let your kid walk to school, you know, just really starting to see disaster everywhere and potential for more loss everywhere. Yeah. And that can be debilitating. Um, it's really hard, but it's also hard not to when you suddenly have this new knowledge that yes, indeed, we can lose the most important people in our lives. Um, you yeah. can't not consider it all the time. Yeah. Nothing makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah. Did you have a fear or do you fear death? You know, I don't fear death itself. I fear not being here for my kids. Um, that's what I fear the most. It just, it yeah. really, like, I'm constantly thinking about it. So that's my big one. I'm not really afraid of the act, the physicality of death or what happens when we die. Um, but I just, I want to be here for my kids as they grow up. So that's mm. my fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry about that a lot. Yeah. It's understandable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One aspect of death for some, is an afterlife, right? Mm-hmm. And you wrote a book about this, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Um, do you believe in an afterlife or a life after death? Gosh, it depends on what day you ask me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I did write a book about this. I was super curious about what happens when we die. And it actually came from this fear of, of um, what would happen if I died after my first daughter was born. I was so anxious. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, I have to figure this out. I need to know if something happens to me, if I'll still be able to connect with her, be here. And it set me off on this whole journey. And I saw tons of psychic mediums and I talked to rabbis and did shamanic work and past life regressions and priests. And um, there were some really profound moments along that journey that made me for the first time in my life, feel like there is something more than this. Mm. Um, but on a regular day, I feel very human. <laughs> like I feel like I'm living this very human experience and who knows if there's anything else. I do not feel like I can see behind the veil. I do not have psychic abilities. I do not have a firm faith um, in any kind of religion. So on a regular day, I'm like, picking up kids at school, running around, you know, doing laundry, getting work done, and not really feeling that spiritual. Mm -hmm. But there are times when I can tap into it Mm -hmm. and I can sit and I can sit in meditation or I can get very intentional about wanting to feel that sense of something bigger, or I can have experiences in nature um, or even in life with friends that, that do make me feel that. Mm -hmm. This is a weird unwieldy answer, I guess, to all of that. I love it. I love it. I'm here for the unwieldy. <laughs> Humans are unwieldy. Claire. We really um, are. <laughs> have you seen The Good Place? No. Oh Is that that gosh. show, um, that afterlife show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it's essentially a about, the show is about philosophy and the mm-hmm. way that it approaches death and how we die is really really quite stunning and beautiful i need to check it out um it's like it it, it like i've i've watched it twice over and i it brings tears to my eyes every time i think mm-hmm. about it it's just really beautiful in in sort of your research and sort of experiencing and talking to these healers and psychics and 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 rabbis did you find any sort of connective theme or tissue in sort of all of the things that they were saying yeah i mean 
most of them really believe that there is something bigger than this, you know, that, that consciousness survives, that our, you know, this is a human experience we're all having, that we are inhabiting these physical forms, but that is not all of what we are and who we are. And that there are reasons to be here. There are lessons to be learned. There's beauty to be had in the, um, yeah, the human, the pain of the human experience, the, the um, existential angst of it, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think I've seen a lot of people who do have a faith or a belief system, they seem to have much more grace in their grief um, mm. for themselves, for, for loss, for everything that they go through. I envy it. Um, <laughs> I think those of us who do not have a firm faith in something really struggle uh, to, find a way to understand why this has happened um, when something tragic happens. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I I think maybe one sort of avatar of that experience, if I'm going to make an assumption, is like, actually, let me contextualize this with, I was raised in an evangelical sort of Christianity world. Uh, You know, it's been a long time since I've been in that space, but Mm -hmm. there was a lot of, I was witness to, especially in my sort of own family, a lot of mm, maybe bypassing of some of the nuance that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, even so far as like talking about lo- loss and losing someone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not saying that's necessarily a negative thing. I, I say it can be a thing that can sort of abandon our wholeness. That could be hard. That can be... Yeah sort of hard for this here and now human experience. There's a lot of layers to it for sure. When I was younger, I would get very angry about, you know, when people would say things like, oh, well, they're with God now, or it was their time. They're in a better place. Yeah, they're in a better place. And I was always like, fuck that. You know, I would just get really pissed about it. Now I just, I don't know, I have a lot more openness to everybody's way of being human. Um, But I do think that you're right. You can skip over some of these important pieces when you attribute it to some kind of um, external power over us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyways, just. Do you believe in an afterlife? Uh, how dare you, first of all. This is my <laughs> podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, you know, sometimes I, I think I'm with you. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I I really, like I said, I really like what, how they uh, contextualize it and positioned it in the good place. Mm-hmm. I, on days, sometimes I lean heavily into sort of the Buddhist mm-hmm. framework. Um, and then some days I sort of am an anarchic sort of you know, burn it all down punk mode, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I don't care about any of it. Right. <laughs> and I'm still yeah. sort of shedding the, you know, the, the framework of Christianity, you know, that, that sort of was a abuse for me in growing mm-hmm. up. So some days, yes, some days, no, I, I, I think it's like fun to think about. Mm-hmm. And I, sure. I think, I think like, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like I love, being imaginative and curious mm-hmm. in my own sort of head and heart and thinking about this stuff because it's 
it's a muscle that I think is so human and so crucial to healing imagination and thinking about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. It was one of my favorite parts of working on that book was for, for like a couple of years, all I did was ask everybody I met, what do you think happens when we die? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I heard all kinds of cool stuff and I, you know, it really opened up my own ideas, but around, around the end of working on that book, I was, I was at a writer's conference and I was talking to this writer friend of mine who's like really sardonic, wearing all black. He was smoking a cigarette. And I was like, Rob, what do you think happens when we die? And he was like, took a long drag of a cigarette. And he was like, Claire, what do you want to happen? And I was like, whoa, (laughs) I had never let myself ask, like, what if I, if I could pick anything, when we die, what would I want it to be? And I was like, wow, it took me like a year. I've, I've like pondered it for like a year before I came up with any kind of answer. And I think it's even changed since then. But that felt very creative too, you know, like why do I have to just only think about these constructs that are being presented? Um, what do I want to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's crucial to the work, the work mm-hmm. of being human, healing, collective healing, all of it is like, what do we how are we asking questions how are we utilizing critical thinking how are we like allowing for our curiosity to dismantle those frameworks that you mm-hmm. mentioned to dis sort of shed some of that artifice and cultural norm and societal norm that is put upon us consciously unconsciously all of it right Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 one of the pieces best. when I'm doing the anxiety work that I ask people to look at. What is their belief around death and dying? What do they think happens? Because what I see a lot is clients will come in and they're suffering for whatever framework they've been carrying around all their time, right? So maybe they were raised in a religion that, that doesn't feel congruent anymore. And now they've gone through this loss and they're like, wait, I'm supposed to be okay with this because God took my person? And they're really struggling. Um with that. And so I'm always asking the people I work with to kind of open up and expand, you know, does it have, do you have to stick with that? You know, are there other things you would like to explore other ideas? What would you most want for your, your husband who died? You know, where do you want him to be? Um, I love that. So that's, that's a part of the anxiety work as well. Yeah. You're a writer. I'm I'm assuming you're a reader as well. Mm -hmm. What, like I know for me, reading has helped with this curiosity, imaginative work. Has it helped you? Oh, Have you yeah. always been a reader? Always. I mean, this is how I became a writer. I, I yeah. was an only child and my my parents were older and they were very social. And I, I was so bored all the time that I just read books. And mm-hmm. um, I just constantly had my nose in a book. And and my house is just covered in books. You know, they're everywhere, Same. stacks of them all over the place. I love reading. Um, I think it's such a window into ideas and people and humanity and, uh, you know. Empathy. I've, Absolutely. You know, my first book was a memoir about my experience of losing my parents. And I, after my mother died, I read it. Every memoir I could get my hands on about somebody going through something difficult. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to be a loss. It could have been anything, car crashes and incest and whatever, you know, anything someone went through and, and, and came out on the other side uh, or found some way to heal from. And those books meant the world to me. Yeah. Um, what were yeah. some of the books you read as a kid that you loved? Oh, where the red fern grows is like oh the first one that Claire, comes to mind. <laughs> it's like that's, just, that's, that's the one, my number man. one. That's know, my right? number one. It's oh the my best goodness! Book ever. Oh I just goodness. like get teary when I think about it. <laughs> oh, I knew Love I liked you. So that's, <laughs> it's like 
I need a boy in the woods with his animals. Like that's I like that's why that. I love I've like that book a thousand times. <laughs> White Fang or Call of the Wild, things like that. Oh, yeah, totally. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah, I so know. heartbreaking. I, and I read that constantly, and it was so I did devastating. Too. Yeah. yeah, why 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 do we love it so much? I mean, it's so it just it evoked so much feeling and yeah, I love that book. So good. So good. Have you had time to read as a mom as a someone writing their fourth book? <laughs> <laughs> um I read bits and pieces of things all the time. I'm always like reading into books and yeah. and I'm never quite finishing anything. Um yeah. but I read to my kids a lot too and mm. that's been good. That's fun. Yeah. I love that. Um so tell me a little bit about this new book you're reading. I know tentative title called The Rules of Forgiveness, or is that a solid title? Are you That's a solid title? My first nice. book is called The Rules of Inheritance. Right. And so this is a kind of follow-up um, memoir, The Rules of Forgiveness. And it follows me from the end of my first marriage to the beginning of my second marriage. And it's about okay. a six-year time period where I am struggling with um just trying to understand being a single mom, what happened with my marriage, love, relationships. But I'm also seeing clients as a grief therapist all throughout. And so I'm seeing all of us struggle with all of these kind of fundamental human truths, you know, how messy Mm -hmm. and flawed we are and uh, what it means to forgive others, what it means to forgive ourselves. Um, Self-compassion is a really huge theme in my work, Mm. Um, both my personal life work and then my work with with clients. Um, Everybody seems to struggle with self-compassion. And there's an element of forgiveness that comes in there as well. Uh, And so I'm really exploring those themes of forgiveness and self-compassion. And I'm doing it on a personal level in the story, but also um, in a more collective way of looking at the work I've been doing. Mm. Sounds amazing. Thanks. And when is that book coming out? Man, it is coming out of me daily. <laughs> um, I started writing on early January and I've written a third of the book. Um, wow. So it's uh, it's due this summer and then it's going to be published next summer. Um, so How exciting. I got to finish it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How does it feel to be a writer for your living? I mean, is it is it like the most joyful thing in the world or is it, you know? hard. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's all the things. It's super it's hard. Things, yeah. It's all the things. Um, writers don't make any money. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I, um, support myself with my therapy practice, but yeah. I love being a writer. I, I just don't have a choice as a writer. This is mm. what I've always done and will always do. Um, but I love it. I love actually having published books and, you know, I've got my books that I've written up here. And um, I think it's, I think it's cool for my kids to see that. And I have a lot of writer friends. They think everybody's a writer. They're like not impressed at all. Um, my cousin just got a book deal this week and her, her very first novel that she's been toiling away at for years. And I was like jumping up and down and they're like, whatever, mom, everybody's got a published book. My, my ex-husband's <laughs> a writer too, but um, it's an amazing thing to do. It's wonderful. Yeah. I love that. Um, so this podcast you're doing with Lemonada, New Day. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Um, yeah. I am so excited about Lemonada. Everything they do is just really, I love them. I love really them. amazing. Yeah, they're trying to make a difference and really mm-hmm. contribute something to the world, which is very cool. Yeah. Um, they approached me with this idea to do a podcast about mental health and about ways we can just make our lives better all the time in small ways. Um, 
as a way of almost like an upstream intervention, you know, like getting ahead of all the depression and anxiety that somehow becomes inevitable. Um, but what are small things we can do to kind of open up our lives in new ways, take care of ourselves, learn more about our own mental health, build community. So I just, um, I've been talking to different guests every week and having these really profound conversations um, similar to this that I really appreciate, you know, just getting into thinking about life, thinking about what has informed us as, as people who are out there speaking about mental health and mm-hmm. um, how did they get here? Um, what are the things that they do on a regular basis to get through their own day, um, get through difficult times. Uh, so we've been just having these really incredible conversations and then providing at the end of each episode, a lot of actual practical resources, um, things you can do based on yeah. what we talked about in the episode. That's great. So that's been really fun too. I love that. Are there any highlights that stick out in your mind so far in the, how many episodes have you done? How many? I don't know, maybe 20. Um, uh, I had a great episode with BJ Miller, who's a hospice and palliative care physician. He lost three limbs in an accident when he was in college. And wow. um, and he is just a really amazing person to talk about overcoming hardship and kind of our physicality and life and death. I had a great conversation with uh, Carrie Fisher's daughter, B- Billy Lord, mm. um, talking about generational trauma and um, kind of what, what our parents passed down to us that we both want and don't want to keep in our lives. <laughs> yeah. Um that was great. Um, I had a really good conversation with Cheryl Strayed as one of my first episodes, um, talking also kind of about loss and moving through life and writing. Yeah, it's been really fun. Do you think that being a podcaster helps you as a writer? Yeah. I mean, I'm just always like mining the world for stories and information mm-hmm. and seeing like, what is it that makes us work as humans? And, mm-hmm. um, and I really like, I just really, really like how, how do I say this? All I ever want to do is put forth, um, how real we all are um, and kind of break these illusions that everybody is doing great or that we shouldn't be so messy and flawed. We're all messy and flawed. So I really like talking to people who have established themselves in some way and people look up to them, but asking them to show their own, um, you know, their own pain and their own ways of having to overcome things. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's important. It's Mm -hmm. the, uh, I don't know, the people thing, like, they eat the same things as us. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that, that yeah. section. Us Weekly, yeah. Yeah, Us Weekly. Stars, yeah, yeah. they're just like us. Yeah, yeah that's, that's it. it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. I love that. Uh, well, yeah. it's a wonderful podcast. And I encourage all of the feely humans out there to, to listen to New Day uh, and to support Lemonada um, mm-hmm. Media. They're doing wonderful work in the world. Um Let's talk about empathy heroes, Claire. So we always kind of wrap up the show talking about people in our lives, could even be characters from stories we love, Mm. uh, who are empathetic, compassionate, feely people. I'll go first to give you a moment to reflect on yours. My empathy heroes this week are um, the jury members of this jury that I was almost placed on this week, in Mm. fact. So uh, starting last week and then two days this week, I was in the sort of pool of being selected for this jury. I wanted to do it like my human sort of like 
duty as as a person living in the world was like it is my duty. I think this is important. And at the same time, it was a month long trial and I can't financially afford to do that. Yeah. Emotionally, it would have been pretty hard. So, my empathy heroes are those who stayed and those who were able to sort of openly say that they can be impartial, they can look at the evidence, they can wait, they can wait till they hear both sides of the case. Um, it's hard work. And I think it's part, I think it's similar to what we were talking about here is like, can we wait? Can we be patient? Can we look at all of the things? Can we take mm -hmm. it all into consideration? Can we be curious about our own bias as we head into these situations, right? Um, it's a fascinating case. I, I won't get into the details here, but oh, wow. it's a civil case. It's a lawsuit. Um, it's very fascinating. Anyways, we can talk off, off air That's if you're awesome. interested, but <laughs> yeah. just wanted to shout out the jury members and, and really all folks who've served on jury duty. It's, uh, it's important and um, it takes work and effort and energy and a reminder that we are all uh, connected here. So those are my empathy heroes this week. How about you, Claire? The first person I thought about was actually someone I had on the podcast, um, Mark Brackett, who wrote a book called Permission to Feel. Mm. And he's just really obsessed with empathy. And he is um, bringing all these programs to schools to really talk about empathy in the classroom and in schools, which I think is so important. I just can't believe we've hit this place in, in, in our culture where we have to go back and realize that we need to give permission to feel and to give permission to understand empathy and to have empathy that we haven't been like teaching the social emotional learning um, in our, for generations. And yeah. I, it just blows my mind that we have to go back and help people understand what empathy is mm -hmm. um, and give them permission to have it, mm -hmm. um, teach them tools to use it. So he's one of the people who's really out there kind of on the ground doing that work. And it, it's really very meaningful to me. Mm. So important. Yeah. His name is Mark Brackett. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I don't, you don't know this about me probably, but I, I lead empathy workshops in schools awesome. and, and things like that. I'm trying to so get into needed. the space of elementary schools. I've been doing colleges and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's so needed. And it's, it's so clear from the moment I started doing it a couple of years ago, how empathy as a concept, we kind of take it for granted. Yeah. I think we we put it into a, a simple checkbox and are like, I did the empathy thing. Mm -hmm. When as most things in life that are meaningful, it's it's ongoing, it's active, it's fluid, yeah. it's nonlinear, it's messy, uh, it takes work. Mm -hmm. Um and and it's hard. And yeah, it it is kind of hard to to feel, hard to see or hard to understand that kids don't or aren't learning that in schools, right? I know, yeah. But at the same time, we talk about this, Claire, like schools in Texas are being, you know, like you can't read a James Baldwin book or you can't, you know, it's like we're, we're, we're up against some, some walls here. Yeah, we really are. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anything we can all be doing to contribute. And I, I'm really grateful to you for holding space for these conversations and putting this stuff out there. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, Claire, where can the feely humans out there connect with you, read your books, all of that lovely stuff? 
Um, the easiest place is just my website, clairebidwellsmith.com. All the things are there, the social media, the books, the events. It's all there. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Well, listeners, uh, that link to Claire's website will be on the show notes uh, for this episode at feelyhuman.co. Claire Bidwell-Smith, thank you for being a part of You Me Empathy. Mm, Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Likewise, my friend. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot. We have each other. It's You Me Empathy. Oh